our great God and Father, Lord, we praise you this day. We honor you and we bless your holy name. Indeed, God, your name is holy. You are hallowed. And we bless you. We thank you, God, for your goodness in giving us life and giving us our breath and everything that we need. We thank you for the good news of the gospel in our Lord Jesus Christ, for his shed blood for us. We thank you that through him, God, we can be reconciled to you and now stand before you faultless, without blame or reproach of any kind, but instead holy, sanctified and cleansed by the good merits of our Lord Jesus. What a tremendous privilege. Lord, we thank you. We bless you. We praise you. We rejoice in what you have done for us, God. And we thank you for the joy of our salvation that you have given to us and for the peace that we now have with you and that now we reside only in your blessing and that you only have good designs for us, world without end. We thank you that you're using all the circumstances of our life for our ultimate good. And Lord, we praise you for your blessed Holy Spirit that lives in our hearts and convicts us of sin and reminds us of your truth and of your loving kindness and mercy to us. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, transforming us and making us to be like Jesus. And Lord, we want to be like Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, have your good way in us. Strengthen our faith. Help our unbelief, God, that we might give ourselves to you in complete surrender. We honor you. We bless you this day. Because of Jesus' holy cross. Amen. Okay. Uh, I want to just first talk about some book recommendations again. These are some books that I've been reading to prepare for these lessons on evangelism. We're kind of wrapping up our lesson on the gospel here. I wish I had more weeks, but I don't. I'm going to run out. Summer's upon us. and So, um, nevertheless... Uh, these books I've been reading, this one is Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. This is a tremendous book. You need to get this book and read it. It's a really good one. The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. This is a very practical book uh, for really kind of getting to the heart of what the gospel is and how to share it. Um, and not only that, he talks about how important it is, the mandate for it, that kind of thing. Real practical book. Mark Dever, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. Okay? This is a book that I recommended when we were going through the Doctrine of Salvation many times. Uh, it's a book by John Murray called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. This is the clearest, most concise treatment of the biblical doctrine of salvation that I know of. And it's very, very concise. It's very clear and to the point. And uh, so I think every Christian ought to have this and ought to read it and ought to refer to it. I refer to this book regularly. Uh, it's just, it's uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I didn't have that experience, and, and that's the first I've heard of somebody having that experience. Although, you know, uh, anyway, it's, 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 uh, it's a fabulous book, all right? Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied. Now, these are two books that this one just recently I learned about. Carol gave it to me. It's by John Blanchard. It's called Right with God. This is the kind of book you give to somebody you're preaching the gospel to. Okay? And and this 
is the most concise book I have ever seen in explaining who God is and what the gospel is to a postmodern. This is it. Okay? He doesn't just deal with the gospel. He deals with the existence of God. And so he's laying that foundation that many postmoderns really need because they really don't have it. And, and so he, not only does he deal with the existence of God, but he deals with the character and the attributes of God before he goes into the gospel. And so he's really kind of laying that foundational work. Right with God, John Blanchard. Okay, if I were you, I'd buy a whole stack of these. You know why? Because you're a gospel minister. And people need the words of life. And you might have five minutes with somebody. You might have five minutes a day. You might have an hour a day. But you can put a resource like this in their hands, and man, you can communicate a lot of information. Are you with me? Okay, get you a whole stack of these, a whole box. I couldn't. I'm, I'm assuming they're about six or seven bucks. Okay, so Amazon or Christian Book or other places, you can find them cheap. You might even find them at Walmart.com. Sometimes they're real cheap there. Uh, okay, here's another book: Fifty Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die by John Piper. If you watch the Desiring God website and or you get on the email list for Philippian Fellowship, which is there, um, about every six months they do a special on this book and they sell them for a dollar eight a piece. So I bought a case because now I got these books I paid a buck a shot for and that's 50 reasons why Jesus came to die, right out of the scripture, man. I mean, you know, he's just laying it on you. And uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's 50 gospel presentations in one little book. That's, only <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. That's good. But, okay, so you want a good value in your evangelism uh, material? Here it is. Okay? There you go. All right? Everybody got that? Okay. All right. So with that uh, and getting started here, there's there's one thing I wanted to say that I think I wasn't really clear about in our Q&A last week, and it's this simple truth, okay? You don't have to fully comprehend all this stuff about the gospel that we've been learning in order to be saved. Amen. And I, I hope you don't hear me saying that. Okay, I'm definitely not saying that. Okay, so being saved is something that God does by the Holy Spirit. And he does it through the gospel. Okay, whatever degree of gospel knowledge that God needs to turn the light on inside your brain or my brain is God's work, not my work. I can't tell you where the line of demarcation is for how much gospel content you need to have before God saves you. All I can tell you is what the gospel message is in the Bible and how Jesus and the apostles preached it, because that's really clear to us, okay? And we can learn some other things beyond that. But my point is simply this, okay? I think we need to be able to understand and clearly articulate the fundamental points of the gospel, right? God, man, Christ, response. You with me? I think that in in articulating those things, that is the power of God unto salvation. Okay? Beyond that, the gospel gets rather complex when we begin to look at all the facets of it and we begin to talk about all the workings of justification by faith and all of those things, right? However, it, it, it's not necessarily true that anybody has to comprehend any of those things in order to be saved, those things beyond God, man, Christ response. Are you with me? But everybody has to understand at some level or degree, God, man, Christ response. Are you with me? And so I just wanted to be sure and, and say that, okay? I, I'm not saying that you've got to be able to deliver some college-level theology discourse on salvation to somebody in order for them to be saved. Everybody with me? Is that, is that really clear? Okay. God, man, Christ, response. Right? You with me? I'm going to talk a little bit more about that before we, before we end the year. Um, but so with that, I want to start today's lesson by reading you a passage out of this book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Okay? Try to pay close attention because I'm going to be reading 
a pretty good section and, and uh, not going back over it. So here he is in the chapter on divine sovereignty and evangelism and, and some things he's saying. For God does what man cannot do. God works by his spirit through his word in the hearts of sinful men to bring them to repentance and faith. Faith is a gift of God. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should believe in him, writes Paul to the Philippians, Philippians 1.29. By grace you have been saved through faith, he tells the Ephesians, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. So too repentance is the gift of God. God exalted him, Christ, Peter told the Sanhedrin, as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, Acts 5.31. When the Jerusalem church heard how Peter had been sent to evangelize Cornelius and how Cornelius had come to faith, they said, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance unto life. You and I cannot make sinners repent and believe in Christ by our own words alone. But God works faith and repentance in men's hearts by his Holy Spirit. Paul terms this God's work of calling. The old theologians named it effectual calling to distinguish it from the ineffective summons that is given when the gospel is preached to a man in whose heart God is not at work. It is the operation whereby God causes sinners to understand and respond to the gospel invitation. It is a work of creative power. By it, God gives men new hearts, freeing them from slavery to sin, abolishing their inability to know and do God's truth, and leading them actually to turn to God and trust Christ as their Savior. By it also, God breaks Satan's hold on them, delivering them from the domain of darkness and transferring them into the kingdom of his beloved Son, Colossians 1.13. It is thus a calling that creates the response which it seeks and confers the blessing to which it invites. It is often termed the work of prevenient grace because it precedes any motion Godward in the heart of sinful man. It has been described, perhaps misleadingly, as a work of irresistible grace simply because it effectively dethrones the disposition to resist grace. The Westminster Confession analyzes it as an activity of God in and on fallen men, quote, enlightening their minds spiritually and ravingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so, as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. That's a quote from the Westminster Confession. He goes on. Christ himself taught the universal necessity of this calling by the word and the spirit. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6.44 He also taught the universal efficacy of it. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And with this, he taught the universal certainty of it for all whom God has chosen. All that the Father gives me will come to me, John 6.37. They shall hear of me and they shall be moved to trust me. This is the Father's purpose and the Son's promise. Paul speaks of this effectual calling as the outworking of God's purpose of election. To the Romans, he says, Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Romans 8:29 and 30. To the Thessalonians, he writes, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. The author of the call, the apostle tells us, is God. The mode of the calling is by the gospel, and the issue of the call is a title to glory. 
But if this is so, then we see it at once why it was that Paul, who faced so realistically the fact of fallen man's slavery to sin and Satan, was able to avoid disillusionment and discouragement that we feel today as it dawns on us more and more clearly that, humanly speaking, evangelism is a hopeless task. The reason was that Paul kept his eyes firmly fixed on the sovereignty of God in grace. He knew that God had long before declared that my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55:11. He knew that this was no less true of the gospel than of any other divine utterance. He knew, therefore, that his own preaching of the gospel would not in the long run prove fruitless. God would see to that. He knew that wherever the word of the gospel went, God would raise the dead. He knew that the word would prove a savior of life to some of those who heard it. This knowledge made him confident, tireless, and expectant in evangelism. And if there were on occasion hard spells with much opposition and little visible fruit, he did not panic or lose heart. For he knew that if Christ had opened the door for him to make known the gospel in a place, that meant that it was Christ's purpose to draw sinners to himself in that place. The word would not return void. His business, therefore, was to be patient and faithful in spreading the good news till the time of harvest should come. Amen? You can see how powerful those words are. They're really clear and concise. I forgot to hit the button. Carol thinks that's a 60s problem. I'm thinking it's a 40s problem. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So, so with that, I, I want to remind you the passage of Scripture that we looked at last week, which was 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15. And there we were looking about looking at the sovereignty of God in salvation, and we talked about at some length how that passage describes that in the, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom does not come to know God but that God is pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Because it is by His doing that we are in Christ Jesus. It is because God has predestined, foreknown, called and regenerated those whom He has chosen to be saved. The fact of the matter is, God is sovereign in salvation. He is the one who saves whom He wills. And, of course, we're not arguing here about the doctrine of divine election, but simply uh, helping us to understand that in evangelism, it's a fundamental principle. We have to understand who's going to respond to our message. Answer, those whom God is working in their heart to effectually draw them to himself. Okay? Therefore, the burden of changing people's hearts is not on us. It's on God. We, therefore, have a freedom. We, therefore, have a a boldness. We, therefore, have a patience to minister to people. Because you know what? We can't change people's hearts. And if we understand this properly, then we can rest in our efforts to evangelize. We can put down our defenses. Okay? And and, and what we really need to do is learn how to clearly articulate the, the gospel. Because that's the power of God that saves people. Okay, you with me? This is why it's so important, I believe, for us to understand all these things about the gospel we've been going through. Because we're gospel ministers. Okay? We've been saved. Now we've come to the knowledge of God. And now we're following Christ and learning of him. And we're learning of these gospel truths so that we are equipped to articulate the points of the gospel that that particularly God is using to minister to different people as we go out and evangelize. Amen? Because we're the church family. We're the mother of all the living. They come to God through us. Okay? 
We are the ones whom God has uh, given the words of life to go out and share. Isn't anybody else in the world but born-again Christians preaching the gospel? And that's the only way new born-again Christians get born into the kingdom. Okay? That's why we still have a faithful witness to today. Because down through the ages, the church has been faithful to proclaim the gospel by the power of God and by the Spirit of God so that God calls out of darkness those whom he has chosen to bring into the light. Amen? You with me? Okay, so with that, <clears throat> I want you to look at uh, page 119. We're going to pick up where we left off. And uh, you know, here I was talking about, uh, right at the top of page 119, we were talking about that, that section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 1, where the word of the cross is foolishness. To those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, Paul says, it is the power of God. Okay? And so to those whom God has chosen to save, when the gospel comes, it's the power of God to set them free. It's the power of God to turn on the light and give them the knowledge of salvation and of sin and of Christ and of God's provision for them. And so consider this. When you pray for somebody to be saved, consider what is it that you pray for when you pray for someone to be saved? And if it be by the power of intellectual assent that people are saved, why do you beseech God for this? In other words, if it just relies on us to give some kind of a fancy apologetic argument for the gospel and try to convince them to, in their own wisdom, become saved, <laughs> okay, then why would we pray for God's help in that? Or what is it that we're praying for when we pray for somebody to be saved? And I'd like to suggest we're praying for the Spirit of God to move on them in power and to give them enlightenment and to give them understanding and to bring them to faith, to give them the gift of faith that they might employ it and be saved. Are you with me? What else would we be praying for? Um, I heard a tremendous reasoning about that this weekend at the Claris Conference that uh, I hope to be able to put in writing and send out to you where... This gentleman was talking about, um, uh, if you will, uh, Arminian thinking about how people come to Christ. And he was talking about how uh, when you pray for, <laughs> for God to save somebody, what you're not praying for. And he gave this whole list of things that, you know, we just think that the gospel is a matter of just convincing somebody that Jesus is the Christ. Well, let me tell you, family... <laughs> Nobody is just convinced that Jesus is the Christ, that they're a sinner separated from God because of their sin. Nobody's convinced of the severity of their sin and of their great need to repent and be saved by the divine grace and mercy of God that he's provided through Christ. Those are supernatural revelations that come to the mind and heart by the power of the Spirit of God. Amen? Are you with me? I mean, think about when you were saved. How powerfully the Spirit of God worked in you to bring these things to your understanding and to draw you to himself. Are you with me? <clears throat> so, consider how Paul spoke about this. Um, of this fact, Paul speaks explaining that he did not use superiority of speech or of wisdom, that his preaching and his message were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but rather he simply presented Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what he says right after that passage we looked at in 1 Corinthians 1. He goes on in chapter 2, and these are his words. He says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Here's what Paul said. I didn't come in and, and with these great eloquent words uh, convince everybody that Jesus was the Christ. That's not what he said. He said, I, I, I came, he said, he said uh, 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 in weakness and in fear and in trembling, and I presented Jesus Christ as a crucified Lamb of God. He's saying, I presented Jesus the Christ, the sacrifice meant to appease the wrath of God. 
He says, I wasn't uh, with superiority of speech and wisdom, and my preaching was not with persuasive words of wisdom. He simply presented Christ with boldness and in the power of the Spirit, told them what God had done for them. This is what brought the Corinthians to faith. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not Paul's superiority of speech or Paul's persuasive words of wisdom. That's what this passage is teaching. Amen? Because he goes on and explains that the natural man does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. In fact, they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. 1 Corinthians 2.14 And he describes to us there in that same section of text that it's by the Spirit of God that we know the things that are freely given to us by God because the Spirit reveals, yea, even the deep things of God to us. Amen? That's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, if you will, God is sovereign in this process of bringing people to faith through the gospel message. This is because people come to believe by the power of divine enablement. That is, through regeneration, through the effectual calling of the Spirit. Not by being persuaded to some intellectual assent unto the glory of the cross by superior speech. But even as we consider this, we all know the folly of it. Because it is only by divine enablement that anyone comes to know God and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ with saving faith. Because saving faith is the gift of God, and no one can employ it until it be given to them by God. Of this fact of divine enablement, that is, regeneration and effectual calling, the Bible speaks very clearly. Consider the following verses as we talk about these things. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, through faith. But look what he says. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Okay? Now, what is faith? It is a gift of God. Who has it? Everybody God gives it to. What does it do? It saves us by the merits of Christ. Amen? How about Matthew 13.11? Jesus talking to his disciples. There he's teaching the crowds the parables of the kingdom. And there he, he answers, he kind of pulls them to the side there and he says this to them. They were asking questions and he answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Now, question and answer here. Why do the disciples know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven? Answer? Because to them it had been granted by God. You see that? Okay, how about John 6.44? Jesus says there, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or in John 6.65, in the same text, he says this, Uh, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. In Acts 16.14, the conversion of Lydia is spoken of like this. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So, question and answer here. Why did Lydia respond to the things spoken by Paul? Because the Lord opened her heart to those things. Why? Because no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. Right? Because no one can come to me unless he's drawn by the Father. And all that the Father gives me will come to me and I will raise them up at the last day. Amen? John 6, 37. And in Romans 8, in 28 through 30, this is known as the golden chain of salvation. Listen to these words. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You see, who is it that gets saved? Those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. You know what that means? He set their destiny beforehand. That's what predestined means. 
Okay? For those whom he foreknew, those whom he decided before the world began to set his love on, he also predestined, right? He goes on, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And listen, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Who is the author of the call, in J.I. Packer's words? God. Those whom he predestined, he called. And all those he called, he justified and glorified. Amen? It's God's work. Salvation is wholly the work of God. 1 Peter 1.3, Peter writes, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, how did you come into a living hope (laughs) in Jesus Christ? I'll tell you how. God caused you to be born again. That's how. Amen? That's called regeneration. Okay? It's the work of God when he makes a new creature out of a dead man. You see, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We weren't sick. We weren't sick and needing a doctor. Okay, we were dead. Now, Ron, how dead is dead? Dead Dead is dead. You understand? Biblical imagery here, when somebody's dead, they're irresponsive, completely irresponsive. Why? Because they're dead. They're like Lazarus. All of men's strivings for them to come back to life. Right? are meaningless until Jesus comes along and he simply says, Lazarus, come forth. And up from the dead comes Lazarus. Let me tell you, before that command from Jesus, Lazarus was dead. He was decaying. By now his body stinketh four days in the grave. Right? At the powerful word of Jesus, Lazarus becomes an example of salvation for all of us. You with me? That family is regeneration. (laughs) Okay? And it's a picture of what happens in salvation. God is the author of the call. And all that the Father has given to Christ will come to Him. Are you with me? How? By the divine call. In regeneration which gives us faith that we employ, then are converted and saved and justified and ultimately glorified. Amen? You with me? Okay. If any of that stuff is too challenging for you, back on page 117 at the bottom, I gave you three links to three lengthy papers about the sovereignty of God and salvation and how it works, natural inability, regeneration, and effectual calling. Okay, there's plenty for you to read and go study there about those things. So moving on then. James chapter one and verse 18, he says this about salvation in the exercise of his will, that is God's will. He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. Therefore. As we consider the gospel and evangelism, it is important to understand that it is God that saves those whom he has called by the power of his spirit at work within them. And it is our privilege to participate in this supernatural work by simply presenting Christ Jesus and him crucified to people and helping them by explaining the simple facts of the gospel to them, just like Paul did, not with superiority of speech, not with persuasive words of wisdom, but simply explaining the facts of the gospel to them. Okay, this is how people come to Christ. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. God works through the gospel, supernaturally. Family, we're just a mouthpiece. We're just a messenger. We're just an ambassador sent into a far place to bring a message from the king. Are you with me? And the message has the power to call out the elect out of darkness. And it is our privilege to participate in this. 
It is God then that causes them to be born again. Those are biblical words. By the exercise of his will, and he opens their heart to respond to the things that we tell them. We then can rest even in the face of resistance and opposition to the gospel because we are simply the means of bringing the message. And they do not come by our superior speech or fancy words of worldly wisdom, but rather by the power of God's spirit in regeneration. This confidence then in God's purpose and will should help us to be both bold and patient with those to whom we witness of God's saving work in Christ. It is our responsibility to be a witness, but it is not our responsibility to save anyone because that is God's work. Therefore, let us simply present Christ and him crucified and leave the results to God. Are you with me? Now, do you see how there is an ability for us to rest in that? And and here's the other thing. We don't have to beat people over the head with a Bible. I mean, I understand. We long to see people saved. We long to see them experience the goodness of God that we've received. Amen? It's good news. Amen? it's, It's news that's so good, we're willing to die for it. Amen? And we badly desperately want to see people be saved and that kind of has a tendency sometimes to make us be very aggressive overly so if you will for people to be saved okay so look lighten up lighten up and learn how to articulate the gospel okay and be an effective tool in the hands of god by just communicating the message and trying to get yourself out of the way are you with me Learn how to articulate the gospel in a way that's attractive to people so that your character communicates Christ to them, that your character communicates to them loving kindness and mercy and grace and also a sternness that stands in truth and is willing to warn them because you love them and the last thing you want to do is see them perish. Amen? And it's it's like Jesus, you know, we kind of have to have that balance. He, He came to us full of grace and truth. He was a gracious Lord who speaks the truth. Amen? And and so that's how we represent him, in his character, in his way, in his gentleness, in his mercy, yet with a backbone that's willing to take a stand for truth and tell people what they really need to hear. Amen? And, and in expressing loving kindness so that they don't doubt that we're concerned for them. They know that. They see that. They can, they can sense the love that we have for them. Yet we're willing to tell them the truth. Amen? You with me? It's not an easy thing to really learn how to do. But we're learning, aren't we? Right? We got nothing but time here. We got nothing but lost souls everywhere we go. Amen? And hopefully tomorrow we can be a little better witness than we are today. As we're learning and growing. Amen? Good night. What a mountain that is. Right? My pride is stacked up to the mountains. God help me. God, help me to humble myself and tell people about the love of Christ. Amen? You with me? Okay, well, let's talk about divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, I want to just kind of talk about the relationship between God's sovereignty working and the response that comes from a human. Okay, you with me? And this maybe is going to get more practical for us than talking about the theology of election and divine sovereignty about what happens to people when they believe, okay? I wish we had more time, but let's just talk about that in general in regard to evangelism, okay? To be sure, this is not to say that people don't make a conscious choice to believe in Christ and that we don't try to persuade them to believe. Of course we do, okay? So I want you to hear me say this publicly again. I've said it several times this year. And I think that maybe there was a time in the past when I was talking about salvation that I, I, I didn't really make this completely clear. But I want to say it again. There's nobody that comes to Christ in faith who doesn't make their own personal conscious choice to follow Christ. Okay? And so I, I know when, when we learn about Calvinistic soteriology, when we learn about God's sovereignty and salvation, 
we get really excited about that, and it's a glorious, wonderful thing to us. And we see all, we, all of a sudden the Bible opens up, man, and starts blooming like a flower in our understanding, right? How many of you experienced that? And then, and then so, so, so then all of a sudden the pendulum swings, right? And here we are, this harsh Calvinist. You know, and, 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 uh, how many of you have experienced that? So, you know, listen, let me tell you something. Who chose who? Well, that's easy. God chooses those whom he saves. But every single person that God chooses to save makes a conscious choice to follow Christ in time and space with their own will. Okay? We say, how does that work, man? Well, here's what happens. Until regeneration, they have an inability to accept God because the message is foolishness to them. Indeed, they what? Cannot understand it because it's spiritually discerned. And spiritually speaking, they are dead in their transgressions and sins. Until God calls them to life, they don't have an ability to respond. However, once he does that, once he regenerates them and raises them from their spiritual deadness, what then do they do? Well, here's what they do. They see the glory of God that he's just revealed to them. They see their desperate need to be saved. They realize the cross and the Christ is God's provision to save them. And they know by the power of the spirit that their right response is a brokenness and a humility that that the fruit of is repentance. And they realize it's their sins that put Jesus on the cross. It's their sins that have them separated from God. And they must repent of their sins. God does all that by the Holy Spirit. So what do they do when he gives them all that divine enablement and information and glorious revelation? Well, they make a conscious choice to believe. And that's the decision that we're all looking for when we're preaching the gospel to people in hopes that they'll be saved. Because to us, that's what we see in time and space. It's a decision to follow Christ. It's a decision that looks like repentance from sin and trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. Amen? It's a decision in their life, family. And so we, 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 we can't you know, let the pendulum swing so far over here in our Calvinistic understanding, right, that we lose the practical elements of what actually happens in time and space. So which one of us here that's been born again by the Spirit of God didn't have a point in time when we made a conscious choice to follow Christ and committed ourselves to him? And then what did they do? You know, we said, hey, we want to follow Christ. We want to turn away from our sins. What should we do? Well, they say, well, let's go get you dunked. Right? We need You need to come make a public profession of your faith. And that's why baptism is seen in the scripture as equivalent to salvation, because that's what it is. It's a public, it's our public confession that now we're identifying with the death of Jesus, right? Who as Savior saves us from death, and we're identifying with the life of Jesus, who as Lord is now Lord of our life. Amen? And that's why all the symbolism in baptism as well. But the fact of the matter is, when you get saved, what's the next thing? Get dunked in water. How come? Because it's necessary for us to make a public profession of our faith in Christ. Are you with me? Okay? That's why it's important for people to get baptized. Because they need, we need to press people to make a public profession of their faith. Don't wallow around in this no man's land where you haven't been baptized. If you haven't been baptized, you need to get in the water. And you need to tell the world that you belong to Christ. Are you with me? How come? Because that's what he commanded us to do. That's how he taught us the faith. And that's what the apostles passed down to us. And it's all right there in the book. Amen? You with me? So, people must make a conscious choice to be saved and respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. Now, I understand they do that entirely by the power of God. Repentance is something that God gives. Faith is something that God gives. Regeneration is something that God does by his own good pleasure and will to whomever he chooses by his own good pleasure and will. However, when all of that happens, what it looks like to us in time and space is repentance and faith. 
Those are the fruits of salvation that we see. Okay? And even then, we don't know who's saved. Right? Because <laughs> we see people come to Christ, and just like he told us in the parables, they may spring up with joy for a season, but as soon as the sun comes, man, they wither away. Right? As soon as a little testing comes, you know, as soon as a little temptation comes their way, well, they fall off the wagon for good. Right? And so, nevertheless, we're looking for this response in time and space. What does it look like? It looks like a conscious choice to follow Christ as Lord and Savior. Amen? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am, I think it is. So she's asking in, in John 6.37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, he says, I will not drive away, right? So in there you see divine election and the universal call of the gospel, right? Whoever comes to me, I will not cast him out. That's why we can freely preach the gospel to every man. We have no idea who the elect are, right? We're just told to go out and preach the gospel to every creature under heaven and make disciples of all nations, amen? But the results of that belong to God. But listen, Jesus' invitation is a sincere invitation to all men. Listen, he says, come to me. That's his invitation. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's Jesus' invitation. What does he want us to do? He wants us to come. How do we come? Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And when we come, that's a conscious choice that we make. Of course, they must, um, they must, <laughs> sometimes my writing is, <laughs> confuse anybody. They must. This is the response we seek from them when we're preaching the gospel to them. Okay? I mean, it's just a, a plain and simple idea. When we're preaching the gospel to people, we want them to come to a response, right? We want them to come to a decision. This is what so many think of altar calls, right? What is the altar call? Well, it's a time for many in many churches when we're hoping that people are going to come and make a response to the gospel that they heard, right? And so that altar call is designed to be that time for them to make that response, okay? Frankly, I think that that's kind of usurped what baptism really is, okay? Because the biblical version is an altar call. It's baptism, right? If you want to make a profession of Christ publicly, you know what we do? We dunk you in the water. You got to get wet, right? You don't just come down and do this thing and quiet, cry some tears and, you know, and I, I don't mean to undermine that. A lot of people get saved that way and I'm not denying that, okay? But I'm just simply saying the biblical public profession of faith is baptism, Okay? So, that's the response that we're looking for when we're preaching the gospel to people. It is important to recognize, however, not for the hearer, but for the Christian witness, that if and when they do respond with true repentance and saving faith, they have done so by the power of God through regeneration and primarily because of his choice for their salvation. Are you with me? I'm saying when people respond to the gospel, it's because God is dealing with their hearts. Okay? The outworking of God's election, then, does have a moment in time and space when it comes to fruition and someone believes and is saved. This conversion is what we seek when sharing the gospel, even though we realize it is a supernatural work that God must perform in their hearts. So we seek to sow the gospel seed and expect others to water somewhere down the road, but it is God that causes the growth and brings to life. We may see someone come to faith in repentance, and we may not, okay? But our responsibility is to share the gospel. Our responsibility is to share Christ Jesus and him crucified, okay? It's God's responsibility to bring him to faith. Okay, and when he's doing that, family, here's what it'll look like. They're going to want to make a conscious choice to follow Christ. They're going to be compelled by the Spirit of God to do that, just like you were when you got saved, right? And with some people, it looks like a lot of fireworks, okay? And with other people, it's their parent gently leading them as a child, 
to Christ. And they, they say, you know, Daddy, I feel like I just need to, I just need to acknowledge Jesus as my Lord. Or I'm so sorry for my sins. Or, or whatever it looks like when, it, when, a, when a tender child in a Christian home comes to Christ. Okay? Or it may look like somebody like me, a crazy, wild, hippie guy. Right? That God saves while I'm having an argument with my wife. You know, that's how I got saved. <laughs> Man, I got born again having a knockdown, drag out argument with my wife when I was 24. And for me, salvation was this 180 conversion thing, you know? I mean, I went from dark to, to light, man, you know? And, and that's just, just the way it happened for me. It's just one of those, that's the way God sovereignly worked in my life. And sometimes there's a lot of fireworks and sometimes there's not. But every time there's always a conscious choice to respond because we're being compelled by the Spirit to surrender our lives to Jesus. Amen? Brother? Yeah. (laughs) Ah. Amen. Praise God for it. Amen. Listen, you don't run faster than God. Because I, at least back then, I could run pretty fast. Right? I'm sorry. I won't chase that rabbit. You know what I mean. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, in chapter 3, verses 5 and following, What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Now what's he saying? He's saying God is providentially giving opportunities to those of us who are preaching the gospel. As part of effectual calling. God's arranging the circumstances of the lives to whom he is calling out of darkness. Just like he did with me and just like he did with that little child who's living in that Christian home and having a faithful Christian witness from his parents. Amen. God is arranging those circumstances. He's the one giving opportunity. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. What's Paul saying? He's saying you want to boast about something and people getting saved? Let me tell you. Let, let him who boasts, boast in this. Right? It's God who saves. Right? What do we boast in? The cross. We boast in what Jesus has done to save us. Amen? Because the one who plants and the one who waters, listen, we're nothing. We are nothing but a frail attempt. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I'm clinging to this life with all the faith that is in me that God gave to me. Because if it were up to me, family, it would be a train wreck, which is what it was until I finally surrendered. Amen? Are you with me? We're frail. We're weak. How can we, who is up to this message that he's given us to proclaim? Are you with me? We're just a we're just a vessel. We're a clay pot in Second Corinthians four, right? Okay. Further, in sowing this gospel seed, we should seek to accurately and vividly portray the gospel in the most serious yet amiable way that we can. Okay? You know what amiable means? Somebody tell me what does amiable mean? Friendly, easy? Yeah. Huh? Appropriately, friendly, easy. Good character, loving character, amiable, right? With virtue, amiable, with virtue. Yet seriously, your gospel ain't a joke. How many of you agree? Gospel's not a joke. You don't see anybody laughing about the gospel in the Bible. It's a serious matter, family. It's a serious matter that people need to be compelled to believe the gospel. Okay? And we can only do so much compelling. The Spirit ultimately has to do the work, okay? But let me tell you, it's a serious matter. And we ought to be concerned about people's salvation. Serious enough that we're willing to look them in the eyes and with love, give them the serious message and tell them the truth and do it in an amiable way, okay? 
After all, a right response to Christ's gospel call is the most important decision that anyone will ever make. It will either be the fragrance of life to them or the smell of death, but they must either repent and believe or perish. There is no middle ground with Christ. Either he is Savior and Lord or we are at enmity with him. In his words, either we will repent or we will perish. As he says in Luke 13:5, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And Paul writes of this Christian witnessing in 2 Corinthians. And here's what he says. He says in chapter 2, verses 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Have you ever thought about your gospel evangelizing efforts as you spreading the sweet aroma of Christ? That's what the Bible calls it. Why should we be ashamed of a thing like that? Are you with me? Rather, we ought to be like a sweet-smelling candle, right? That That with sweetness brings the message. Are you with me? God help us. God help me. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? You see, here's what he's saying. Here we are, these these clay jars going around carrying this fragrance of Christ. To some, it is the smell of death. As they resist and reject, to others it is the fragrance of life. And isn't it a glorious thing when we see somebody come to Christ? Amen? I mean, you know why the angels are rejoicing. (laughs) Because there is much joy when a sinner is forgiven. Amen? It's a glorious thing. It is a glorious thing. But as a gospel witness... Even though we seek a human response to our fervent efforts to persuade men of their lost condition and need to repent and believe, we also realize that this ability only comes from God through regeneration and effectual calling, so we are able to be both bold and patient with our hearers, knowing that God will work his own will in his own good time. We can be bold because we carry the very words of life and we have direct orders from the sovereign of the universe to do it. Family, it's God's message. Okay? It's God's message. It's God's work. He's simply asked us to just take the message. Just take the message and communicate it. Okay? Our our fine methodology isn't going to save anybody. Okay, it's the message of the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. And all we need to do is communicate it clearly in an amiable way. That's all we need to do. It's not it's not a difficult task. It's really not. It's just that we're you know, we we, we have a real struggle with the resistance that comes to the gospel. Okay, but you need to understand Jesus did it perfectly and they put him on a tree. Okay, unfortunately, or should I say fortunately, right? We've been privileged with that opportunity. Suffering comes with preaching the gospel. But which one of us is not willing to pay that price? Do we love our skin so much? Or do we love our Lord even more than our own life? Amen? So, God help us. Let's pray. God, our Father, O Lord, you know we are so frail. O Lord, so often distracted, not even aware of what you might be doing around us. But Lord, we realize we are frail. We're weak. However, we also realize that the gospel is the power of God to salvation and that Lord, all we need to do is simply testify. And so I pray for each one of us that you'll give us a boldness Lord, just to speak clearly the truth with love and with gentleness and with respect and with kindness. 
God, give us an, an ability to understand and articulate the gospel so that it's clear to others. And then, Father, I pray for this. I pray that you give us opportunities. And I pray that at that time you'll strengthen our faith with boldness and with patience. And I pray, God, that we'll begin to see people come to Christ through our own personal efforts of evangelism. God, give us this joy of seeing people be saved, I pray. Give us a longing for that by your Spirit. We honor you and we praise you because of Jesus' precious blood. Amen.